Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. I'm extremely excited about today's show because we're going to get into the relationship between Rafael Nadal and Tony Nadal. It's topical because Tony has uh, is back on tour coaching the young Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime. But uh, we do plan on talking about Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer and their coaching trees and, and their uh, biggest mentors, the people who shaped them. Uh, but let's start with Novak Djokovic um, because it is Madrid. Djokovic notably absent. So once again, we, uh, we have some scheduling to talk about as uh, Novak isn't in Madrid. This really surprised me, Amy. I thought Djokovic would surely play Madrid. I actually like the decision a lot um, to stay home and play Belgrade 2. And he can't, obviously, well, he could, but he probably wouldn't want to play all week to week to week like Rafa does all the the tournaments. So I like how he's managing his body. And I think he maybe more even than the other two draws a lot of strength from home. There's a lot of national pride there. And I really like the decision. And, you know, he's an underdog for Roland Garros. So why not change something up, try something different? And I just think it's a great decision and uh, looking forward to see if that works out for him. You make a a compelling argument. I do think that Although tennis players can sometimes be global souls, Novak is really, he is a, a homebody. Like he, he loves Serbia as much as anyone. But what, what throws me off is it means he's playing the week before Roland Garros. And I've just, I'm surprised by that because normally I feel that that uh, is not something that works out for a lot of players. And I think the most famous example is John Isner playing Winston-Salem before the U.S. Open. And he, he likes, he wants to play. It's close to his home, but he's a, a top 15, top 10 American who was just wiped out by the time the U.S. Open around, came around because he insisted upon playing Winston-Salem. I'm not saying Novak Djokovic and John Isner should be in the same sentence together. I'm just saying as a general rule, uh, it's just, I'm, I'm really surprised to see Novak playing the week before a major. Generally, pros don't want to do that, particularly ones who fancy their chances going into the second week. <clears throat> so you see a play because that means Novak, he's going to play Rome. He's going to play Belgrade and then he's going to go on to Roland Garros. So that could be possibly four straight weeks of tennis. But there's many, many different examples. I mean, the Queens Club tournament used to be many moons ago, just before Wimbledon. Um, there is New Haven, uh, lots of things. And again, the whole sense of match toughness and match weariness. Remember, these guys didn't play as much earlier this year. So it's just, everything is kind of in flux around this pandemic. And again, I think Novak's desire to, to play some good tennis at home is compelling too. And Gil, let's say for argument's sake that Novak goes deep in Rome or maybe even wins. He can always say, you know what? I'm too tired to play Belgrade. I'm just gonna chill out that week. I mean, it's nothing is set in stone. 
A hundred percent. Definitely something that is good to throw out there. Um, Rafa Nadal prepares to play his first match in Madrid. Carlos Alcaraz, uh, it will be his uh, round two opponent after he beat Adrian Manorino in the first round. It's a juicy matchup. A lot of people are really excited for that. I, I don't know if, uh, it's going to be competitive and live up to the hype given their, the, the difference in where each other's uh, careers are at, but uh, it's certainly intriguing. I'm, I'm excited for that. Joel, are you going to be, uh, is that appointment television for you, Nadal Alcaraz? It's an assignment. I'll be covering it. I wrote there a, preview, you go. a little preview about Alcaraz <laughs> and, uh, and Nadal, and I think it's just going to be an interesting thing to see. I mean, I know, uh, you know, to see this whole connection between these two and Alcaraz, he's, He's 17. I mean, Amy, I know you had some, uh, some stuff we were talking about around that. Yeah, in 2003, a 16-year-old Rafael Nadal at Madrid beat Carlos Moya, who is now his coach, and fellow countrymen. And uh, at the time, Nadal said that Moya was a big uh, idol of his. So it was kind of, um, you know, a passing of the torch moment. That doesn't mean that it's the same type of thing. It's just, I find the symmetry really interesting. I love that stuff. I mean, that's the stuff out of movies, the generational passing. And, and Moya from Mallorca, very much a mentor to Nadal. There's this a great story when Nadal, I forget if he was 11 or 13, no older than 13, he was talking to Moya. And Moya, by that stage, had been number one in the world, had won the French Open. And... And Moya said to the young Rafa, do you think you uh, want to have a career as, as good as mine? And Rafa said, well, I, I think I can have a better career. Like, he's 13 <laughs> years old and he says that, but he was right. He was right. Yeah. And, and I think again, in, uh, it's always neat to see one country becoming really kind of the, uh, the superpower by its community, by its sense of camaraderie. Once upon a time, it was Australia. For a while, it was Sweden. And now the last 20 years, it's very much been Spain. I mean, the playing style, the way of going about training, the way of how they play the, play the game and the Davis Cup and the way they kind of look out for one another and they, they take positions in the game. You see that Feliciano Lopez, David Ferrer, they become tournament directors. That Albert Costa had been a tournament director. They become coaches. They're kind of infiltrating, pervading the game. You know that, Gil, from having worked with a, a coach from the Spanish system. So it's neat to see and to see this Alcaraz, who's been working with Juan Carlos Ferrero. So you see this whole, this whole community of, of mates looking out for one another. Mm -hmm. Such an amazing generation of players. So much so that, that, as you alluded to, Joel, my coach from the United States said, I want to copy what they're doing over in Spain. And, and that is what, what he did as a coach. He went and studied Luis Bruguera and uh, Pato Alvarez and, and those guys. But from, I mean, you can just look at the guys, uh, in the draw over the age of 30 around Nadal's age in Rome from Albert Ramos Vinolas. And um, um, you had, you had obviously Feliciano Lopez, the, the tournament director, um, Pablo Carreno Busta, a little bit younger than them. Uh, Roberto Bautista Agut in there, Nicolas Almagro, who retired quite early. Amazing crop of players, amazing generation. Oh, not even, I wouldn't even call Carreno, but to me is kind of like a, Karina Busta ancestor and way before there was Emilio Sanchez and Felix Mantilla and Al Costa and, and Alex Caracha. I mean, you just see years and years of these guys having long careers too. I mean, uh, Almagro was a little bit surprising that he didn't play quite that long, but a lot of the others, I mean, these guys, 
these guys are, they put a lot of miles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, none more successful than Rafael Nadal, who was the flag bearer for that generation. And he did so largely under the tutelage of Tony Nadal. Nadal won 16 of his 20 majors with Uncle Tony as his head coach. And officially, Tony was Rafa's coach from 1990 to 2016. So it's very unique in the sense that Tony was there from the, the very start. So not only did he shape much of his professional career, but a lot of his childhood as well. Uh, it's, it's, so, it's such a fascinating relationship uh, because I feel like because Tony had his hands on, on Rafa from such an early age, you can give him more credit than you can give uh, most coaches, I would say. Oh, absolutely. He's a formative coach and also he's a family member. It's, it might be like no other coaching relationship in the history of the sport. I mean, because you have a, an uncle. So it's family, it's an mm -hmm. uncle. An uncle may be a second father, but he's not the first father. So there's something to that. And there's all these ways. Yeah, Tony, 1990, that's the year Nadal turns four. So they build a whole series of, of connections and a whole way. And, and Tony's, I mean, there are oodles of stories of Tony's discipline. I, I could, I'll rattle them off as we talk about ways that he constantly helped Rafa's have his a sense of humility. And what's that? built that early like i saw a story i was reading the other day it says he he keeps nadal grounded nadal was never soaring i mean when someone starts working with someone when they're four or five years old they're putting ideas right into their operating system I and mean, maybe amy you could share this you're you're the one parent of us and how you instill values and behaviors in in a child yeah it's kind of like the younger they are the more of a blank slate they are and of course, everyone knows that uh, if you follow tennis, that uh, Rafa was actually is actually a right-hander, but was um, he had a lot of ambidexterity. But they went ahead. Tony, you know, went ahead and encouraged him to be a lefty to advantage his tennis. And um, many, many stories, like you said, Joel, of the discipline tension between Rafa and Tony. It was tough at times. It wasn't easy. I mean, they love each other. Tony's thing, I think, had a lot to do with Rafa and his, again, his sense of values. I mean, one of the great stories I read, even this was even the last few, maybe in Rafa's adult life, he's, he's taking an elevator to a restaurant or something, and he, um, he's wearing his casual clothes, and they see that the dress code is formal, but someone from the restaurant says, oh, you're it's all right, you're Nadal. And Tony says, no, go back to your room and change. And so many times the lesson was just because you play tennis better than someone doesn't mean you're better than them. And you think, um, uh, Gil, you play junior tennis. I played junior tennis. Um, you see the way, and I think maybe, Amy, you did some too. You see the, an America that doesn't work that way. Sometimes the kid who plays better tennis thinks he's like altogether greater and he's not, doesn't have humility. Yeah, I mean, if it, I think it's more the family member dynamic because a lot of times the parents will hire a coach and, you know, then the parent will be involved in that relationship and, you know, that there's a triangle there, there's parent, coach, and kid. And uh, that makes it really tricky. And then eventually the coach gets fired because the kid's not winning or the kid is upset and angry well you can't fire an uncle <laughs> i mean i guess you could but Particularly he's still part of the family you're Particularly totally right apparently an uncle who insists on working for nothing 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Well, and I think that's, I think that's really an interesting aspect of it because you're, you're alluding to the fact that uncle Tony said, I don't want any of Rafa's prize money. I want zero cut. And why did he do that? And it's such a a unique thing that you really wouldn't see elsewhere on the tour uh, aside from maybe parent coaches. It's because Tony wanted to be the boss. And as soon as you're taking money from your player, well, now, now the player's the boss. So Tony w- was an authoritative figure, and, and he, he was money. in he charge. Money. But to make, he didn't want money, but this, is, this precedes Rafa being a pro. You know, he didn't want money in Rafa's formation. So it's not like he's like, I want a cut of his thing. And, and so many times, Tony would do these lessons to Rafa, like Rafa wins some 12s tournament. And, um, and Tony says, hey, look at, see all the names of all the people who've won it? And Rafa goes, I don't know any of those names. He goes, that's right. That's right. Or like, and I think I I wrote this a few years ago, you know, Nadal was junior rivals with Gasquet. And when Gasquet was um, nine years old, he was put on the cover of a French tennis magazine as the promising protege. And that's okay. I can almost guarantee you that if a Spanish tennis magazine had come to Tony Nadal and Rafa when Rafa was nine, Tony said, no way. In fact, on second thought, Rafa should be hand-delivering those magazines to subscribers. <laughs> have a paper route. I mean, so many times, there's so many examples, and you've seen, and you see Nadal, you know, his, his lack of sense of entitlement, and, and then the respect that gives him for the game and his opponent. That's why, he, that's why he tries to completely obliterate his opponents, because he respects the game. I respect you so much that I'm going to bring nothing less than my best effort to beat you, and so much of that comes to what he worked on with Tony. And again, you said it was hard. I'm sure, look, there's a lot of discipline and Rafa, like any kid at certain points, okay, you mean another half hour on the court? You know, more serves, more this. I mean, you know, you can see how much work Nadal put in, but he, he liked it. I mean, he, he, he liked the work. According to a early 2010s Bleacher Report profile on Tony Nadal, Tony would make Raphael play on dodgy courts with terrible tennis balls just so Raphael could put things into perspective and understand that winning or losing was about being disciplined and having the correct attitude. Tony made Nadal sweep his courts before and after practice sessions, and Tony threatened to stop coaching Rafa if he broke a racket. Very behavioral-based coaching. And, you know... I think that's a brilliant thing to think about because when we talk about what we admire about Rafa, so much of it is not, well, he's got a great forehand and a great back, but it's how he approaches the game, how he trains and how he carries himself. And uh, it just, it all makes sense when you think about how Tony raised him really. Competing as process. I think that's how I look at Nadal competing and, and what will happen will happen. Of course, he's, won a heck of a lot of tennis matches but it's just this whole notion of how you think of it you're you're literally taking care of the court before you walk onto it you're leaving it immaculate for the person who comes next for it your whole sense of where you fit into that instead of like okay 
and it's so different that again, I come to America, I think of league teams I've been on where people, they show up for their match and then they leave. They, you know, it's like, I, I played my match. It's time for me to go. I'm not going to stay and watch the other teammates. And, you know, Rafa would never do that. Maybe you can, maybe we can get him on one of our league teams. <laughs> yeah. You can fair. understand why um, Oje Aliasim, his people would want Tony Nadal in there because he, <clears throat> he FAA is still so young. So um, maybe they were looking to have Tony instill some of these values. Um, whereas in 2017, <laughs> Rafa's got the values now. He, they're, they're ingrained, like he's good. So it, as we talk about this, it makes perfect sense that um, Rafa would make the change to Moya. Well, and it, was almost... Moya. it was great that it was Moya. It's like, we're kind of more or less keeping it in the family. I mean, because Moya was like yeah. the, bigger, the big brother when Rafa was coming of age, it's, it's Mallorca. It's not even someone from the, from the, from the rest of Spain. So Moya, and, and, then, and then Moya brings in a little bit more, okay, let's, some things with the serve, some things with the forehand, some technical tactical, you know, Moya. Moya has some kinesthetic awareness of the court in a game. You know, Tony was a top, I've read anywhere from top 50 to top 30 Spanish players. So it didn't mean he couldn't play. But again, when you're, when you're that high up the mountain, you, you, they, you, it helps to have someone who's really been up there too. And Moya, and that seems to have gone pretty seamlessly. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's hit on. I... Let's hit on the breakup, and then and then we'll go to Felix. Um, so obviously, Rafael brings on Carlos Moya, and then Tony left shortly thereafter, as Tony felt he was losing decision-making power to Rafa's manager, to his father, and then ultimately to, to Carlos Moya. Uh, there was a little a dust up because he didn't originally tell Rafael. Uh, so Nadal actually learned, I, I got to call them by first names. Rafael learned uh, from the media that Tony was leaving, but ultimately I think that they got over it pretty quickly. And if you, if you zoom out and I think Joel, you were, you were getting at this, but to me, it seems like this has been a really great career move, moving away from Tony for, for Rafael. Do you agree, Tony? I, Amy? <laughs> I, I think um, one thing I know that maybe not a lot of other people know, just because I, I work some in the analytics, I work with some of the coaches, um, Moya is really into the analytics. Now, I don't know exactly where Team Nadal gets their data. I don't know if they've hired one of these firms, but I have been privy to a couple of conversations where it's become clear that they do a lot of advanced scouting on their opponents and that Moya um, is really sort of buttoned up in this area of the game, which most players are using the analytics now. Um, so when we think of Rafa, we think of this sort of organic guy and the Spanish X and, you know, his forehand and his topspin, but he, he really is using the analytics now. And Tony was not. Well, Tony was a philosopher humanist. And that's what comes across like you're reading, like I was looking through Nadal's autobiography and there's this whole, you know, Tony is, is philosophical. Tony is, is wise and Tony is values. And I think, yeah, I think it gets, he's like, humanities and, and maybe Tony wasn't quite as embracing of that stuff. But again, I don't think of it as, a, I don't think of it that much of a breakup. It's not a breakup the way, I mean, it's family. It's in the family. And Tony was, Tony's often seen as kind of the, the philosophical dreamer 
guy and the time would come. And I think it all works again. There's no money involved. You know, it's, it's just, and, it, and, and there's the Academy and Tony's still involved in the, in the Nadal family tennis biz. So it seemed to work. And then, and it was Moya. And I think that was kind of indisputable. It's not like he brought in a coach from another country who, who's this guy? What's this? I mean, I think it, it seemed to work. And there's something, there's something very harmonious about Nadal. Like the only place where Nadal creates conflict is when he's trying to beat your brains in. Otherwise, he strikes me as a very docile, you know, smooth kind of guy. 100%. Yeah. I do think, though, that Rafa needed to look inward at his game. And when he brought on Carlos Moya, it was at a time where he was putting, posting some of the worst results of his career. Wait, when, when, was, when, did the Moya, when did Moya start? It was in 2016. Well, wait, end of 16, end of 16 start. Well, Tony was on board at the Australian open 2017, but had already announced during that tournament that he was leaving. So it was on the heels of Rafa's worst season, really that Moya came on board and then Tony ultimately left shortly thereafter. So there was, I think a, a tennis reckoning there and all of the values that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation those are never going to go away. But I think there needed to be some adjustments on the tennis side. And that's where I think Carlos Moya came in and really helped out. Well, at that stage, at that stage for sure. And then 17, finals Australian, uh, wins the French, uh, wins the French, wins the US Open. And so, there, but I think, I think there's kind of like course correction. I mean, again, again, I just, I'm always, I'm a little, you know, tennis, yeah, it's not like the, it's not like 20, it's not like a football team in 2016, Nadal didn't even make the playoffs. Oh my God, what is happening? And then he kind of, I mean, I, I think you're right in the tennis. I mean, Tony would think of himself as the tennis part too, but I don't even mean a little more technical, tactical. Yes. Yes. I, w- I would refine it to, to put it into that lens. Right. So, yeah. So, but it's, it's pretty, works out pretty well. I mean, Nadal, it's interesting as we are going to talk through these other guys and their coaching tree. They're gonna, we're gonna see a very different set of, of behaviors and patterns. I mean, Nadal's though is very much in the family, very much mm-hmm. in the family. For sure. Well, let's, let's hit on Felix as, as Amy mentioned. Um, I agree with you that it, it says a lot that, you know, Tony thinks that Felix is moldable. I was almost more impressed with Felix when this news came out because I thought, oh, if Tony wants to coach Felix, that must mean that we're talking about a kid who is extremely ready to buy in to whatever Tony's on. Because there's no way Tony, he doesn't need this. He's not going to go and and coach someone who maybe uh, lacks some of the professionalism or the the open-mindedness or the willingness to improve. So I, I was almost impressed with FAA that Tony would say, okay, let's go. I'm all in. Let's do this. Well, it's just, a, you're right. It speaks to his openness, to his willingness to try things. I think it's also just kind of, let's give it a go. I mean, it's not, it's, 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 it's let's give it a go. It's sort of, and I think when you work with Tony and Dallas at the stage, it's a certain type of consultancy expert. I mean, Felix has other people too who help with things and, and, and Tony, just some different language, some different ideas, Let's see what this might be, and who knows how they might connect. And they're gonna they're gonna see. I mean, it's it's probably month to month. Yeah, I know that Tony's doing a lot of um, 
consulting and speaking engagements and um, the tour, you know, where you can do the virtual and, and that kind of thing. And um, I think he's really enjoying that. So it kind of surprised me that he would want to get involved in, in a team of an individual player who, by the way, might play Rafa, you know, in a big match at some point, which is, is kind of strange. But, you know, at, at, if you've got 16 Grand Slam tournaments that you have helped um, achieve, then you can do whatever you want. Well, and it's a senior guru role. It's, a, it's his version of, let's say, some of the role that, let's say, Lendl played with Murray. I mean, it's not, it's not the coach who books my practice, who gets my racket strung, who finds my practice partners. It's the senior guru. And so that's going to be a different role. And I'm going to see how that, how that plays out. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the stuff, Tony, like I watched a TED Talk he gave and uh, other kind of things. And I think he's trying to figure out, yeah, what, do, what is the role, what does the world look for me? Look like There's for a me. Tony Nadal TED Talk. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I oh my saw, God. Yeah, why not? Why, why don't I know about this? I don't know. I don't know because you only cover 99% of the world, Gil. The rest is up to <laughs> you. <laughs> I can't believe I missed the Tony Nadal TED Talk. I think this is fascinating, just the whole, the, the coaching dynamics in tennis because it's not so cookie cutter like, like a lot of other sports where the, the role is defined and there's kind of a way to do it. Uh, it's so diverse and unique in tennis, and I can't wait to get into the other two. But uh, uh, Tony Nadal and, and Rafa, this is this is something that's probably undercovered as as just what a unique relationship that was. Well, that'll do it for uh, for this episode of three. We will continue to monitor Ma uh, Madrid and whatever the result is for Rafael Nadal. I'm sure we'll be right on that with uh, another episode talking about what went down. Again, we will continue this series of, uh, of talking about coaches. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like the video, subscribe, leave a comment if that is, uh, if that is intriguing to you. We'll see you next time on the next episode of 3.